внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. It's got a feeling of deja vu. Russia is again massing troops and moving ballistic missile systems near Ukraine's border and is accusing Kyiv of violating the terms of a ceasefire agreement in the Donbass region. In a bellicose speech last week, Vladimir Putin accused the United States and his NATO allies of aggravating the situation by supplying Kyiv with modern lethal weapons, vowing that Moscow will adequately respond. And the Kremlin is claiming, without any confirmation from Washington, that a second summit meeting between Putin and U.S. President Joe Biden is in the works. The summit would purportedly resolve a crisis entirely of Moscow's making. We've went through this all before, of course, when a menacing Russian troop buildup on Ukraine's border in April was followed by a Putin-Biden summit in June. So is Putin trying to repeat that trick, or is something more menacing afoot? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the beautiful Lithuanian capital city of Vilnius is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back to the podcast club. Hello. Hello. And joining us from sunny Miami, Florida is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant, State for, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at Florida International University, Stephen J. Green School of International Affairs. Welcome back to the vertical, David, with your very long bio. Indeed. Good to be back, Brian. Good Thanks. Kostya, um, it was great to see you in person at the Democracy Conference in Vilnius last week, and we will be discussing that conference in the second half of today's program. But first, I want to discuss what Putin is up to at the moment. We, as I said, have another troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. We got more bellicose rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin. We got more expressions of concern coming out of Washington and NATO. And we've got talk, at least on Moscow's end, of another Putin-Biden summit. Kostya, what's your take on this? Is Putin trying to repeat the same trick he pulled earlier in the year, or is something more dangerous and nefarious afoot? I think it's something more dangerous. Putin doesn't repeat uh, certain things exactly. Uh, moreover, he has this idea of slightly Mario Pizzo, godfather-like uh, honesty. Uh, he always likes to say post-factum, I told you so. I warned you so. I was never in any way uh, lying to you. And I think that uh, what he did in spring was a dress rehearsal. Uh, actually, very useful one for him, probably, even militarily, because he could see what the Ukrainians will do in response. He could monitor their movements. He could see the readiness of their armed forces, the communication systems. Uh, he also tested Western reaction and crash boom bang, what he got. He got an invitation for a summit with the leader of the free, of the free world uh, in, in June. And moreover, the leader of the, of the free world, Joe Biden, uh, did not bother to meet 
the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, before meeting Putin, which probably would have sent a completely different message. So I think now Putin is up to something more serious, because we have to remember, since then, we had the uh, house arrest and possible trial of uh, the uh, of, of the only probably Ukrainian politician who stands for Russia, uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, is a billionaire, and his daughter is Putin's goddaughter. So Putin takes it very personally. We know he looks at politics uh, very much from the lens from through the lens. We know that he looks at politics very frequently through the lens of uh, personal relationships. Secondly, uh, he got he was unfrozen by this meeting with Biden. He's now internationally kosher, if I may say so. And I think that uh, that added up kind of uh, self-assurance, uh, added a, a, a kind of a spring to his step. And thirdly, what's even more important, I think, uh, he feels that he's in a cul-de-sac, he's in a dead end with uh, Ukraine. It's very clear by now that President Zelensky and any Ukrainian government, actually, uh, which comes after him, will never fulfill the Minsk agreements. It's very clear at the same time that Zelensky, with all his weaknesses and, uh, and, uh, uh, and mistakes, has taken a major step towards linking Ukrainian military to NATO, to Western allies. An amazing uh, uh, thing happened in summer when Ukraine signed uh, a, a contract with the, the UK for uh, for the UK to build one, probably two uh, 20th century, 21st sorry, century missile destroyers uh, for the Ukrainian Navy. Uh, it's a very close cooperation now with the United States. Uh, arms were flowing, uh, lethal weapons were flowing to Ukraine uh, ever since 2017, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. And the Ukrainian armed forces, Ukrainian military officers uh, get more and more training including in West military academies. So uh, I think that the feeling in uh, Moscow is that maybe, uh, you know, to use the old, old Elvis Presley songs, now or never, mm -hmm. uh, because also there are several things which now play in Putin's favor. Uh, Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline is built, and it's very clear that Germany stood by it through thick and thin. Um, very possible scenario in France is that you have an anti-NATO and anti-American president, Eric Zemmour, uh, coming to the Elysee uh, next spring. Uh, on top of it, NATO border, NATO's eastern border, as we speak, is being tested mm -hmm. by uh, migrants for hire uh, from uh, um, by the Lukashenko regime, which is supported uh, by Putin. So I suppose that I can't say whether Putin thinks about the uh, tank parade through Kreshetik, the, the, uh, mm, the, Kiev, the Kiev Mall, uh, but uh, he definitely is going further this time than he went in spring. That's my prediction. So you think this could go kinetic I mean, with, with Ukraine? I mean, it's already gone kinetic, but a fresh offensive could, could be launched here. You, uh, yes, it's, uh, let's, let's face it. The war has been going on since 2014, and Putin probably just will relaunch it. He'll, he'll just open a new stage uh, in this war. Uh, we, it, my conservative estimate is that it will be something to deal with humanitarian intervention 
in the so-called uh, LNR and DNR, the so-called Donetsk republics, which are, well, de facto controlled by Moscow, uh, moving troops to the border and saying, yeah, well, you know, we're saving Russians from the horrible uh, Kiev Nazis. Uh, right. So give us Minsk three. Right. Uh, Minsk three, which will force Ukraine to do what we tell her. I think this is the minimum mm. that Putin aims at this time. Yeah, I want to drill deeper into the Ukraine, the situation that Putin kind of senses in Ukraine, uh, as well as where things are going in Belarus. But I want to bring David. And David, do you share Kostya's alarming take on this? So could, could this be about to go more kinetic again? I, I think it's possible. I, I, I think there's a combination of things here, and I think Kostya touched on on quite a bit of it. I do think Putin wants another meeting with Joe Biden. Um, and I think if there is one, they will be virtual initially, and then they'll agree to meet again in person. This seems to be very important to Putin. He doesn't like to be quote unquote parked, uh, as the term has come up about the administration wanting to park Russia over on the side, while the administration, the US administration that is, focuses on China. Um, he seems to value the uh, stage that, that he shares with the American president. Remember, in that Europe trip in June, Joe Biden was meeting with all the other leaders on the margins of other meetings. And he went to Geneva solely and specifically to meet with the Russian president. And Putin likes that. Um, I also think in the back of Putin's mind, he has to be doing a little bit of the math where Biden said, we'll see in six, eight or 12 months how Russia's doing when it comes in particular to cyber, uh, cyber attacks and ransomware attacks. And as far as I can tell, there have been conflicting statements from U.S. administration officials about this. There really has not been much done. Now, there haven't been any huge attacks that we've seen in the news right now. But remember that the, the solar winds attack didn't become public until significantly after it happened. So it's it seems to me likely that the Russians are still engaging in this kind of behavior. But Putin, I think, would like to forestall those sanctions and thinks that the prospect of a summit would, in fact, forestall those sanctions. I do think uh, a threat against Ukraine is much more serious this time than it was in the spring. Um, but the, the, my hesitation, the only hesitation I have is I'm not quite sure what Putin thinks he would accomplish by reinvading Ukraine. Um, he's got a lot of problems at home. Um, and uh, a second time, as Kostya said, this has been ongoing since 2014, but a major offensive into Ukraine would be met with massive resistance and a much more effective fighting force on the Ukrainian side. He could wind up in a huge mess if he were to do so. I hope he's thinking in those terms, but Putin doesn't think like we do in, in the rational sense. Go ahead, Kostya. If I, if I may, I, I think that there is another possibility. And if, I mean, I, I, I'm completely with you on, on Putin wanting this summit with Biden, because also let's remember, Biden invited him for the summit. Biden was the initiator of that. He wasn't begging for a summit. But I think that another version of it is that, uh, of this trip buildup, uh, is that uh, it is a form of chantage. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, if he thinks that the Biden administration needs him that much for Afghanistan, for China, for strategic stability talks, whatever this term is supposed to mean, uh, then he will say, well, you see, I'm going to take Ukraine over in the matter of, okay, a month. I'm not afraid to spill blood. But 
if you are going to tell Mr. Zelensky to pick up the phone and do as I'm going to tell him, then probably I'm not going to send all these troops in. So it's, and I think that this so it's time, against implemented on his terms then. That's, that's, yes, that's, yes, that's right. And I think that then it may be a form of blackmail. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, is very worrying. That, to me, in a certain way, will be more worrying than his uh, sort of exercises in uh, jacking up tension, because that means that he's convinced that the U.S. administration, or at least he's convinced that there's a very serious chance that the, this U.S. administration will, will, will kind of uh, will fold and will give him what he wants, or at least a significant part of what he wants. If he thinks so, that has to have reasons to do that. And this is an extremely worrying thing to me, to some extent more worrying than uh, the military buildup, because I'm sure that in the end, his military will tell him what can and cannot be accomplished. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, he likes small, he likes his wars, um, as I think uh, small State Hey said, um, splendid little war, you know, that, that's what, what, uh, what he wants. And this war, as you rightly said, is not going to be neither small nor splendid. Yeah. Maybe victorious eventually, but it's going to be bloody. And I don't think, I, I think he, sh he will wait it. So uh, an attempt at blackmail, possibly, yes. Mm. Uh, David, what do you, yeah, you, you wanted to say something, but I wanted to actually get, get you to, to also weigh in on, I mean, how do you see this playing in the administration right now? We, we do know there is this debate in the administration with the National Security Council kind of wanting to park Russia um, so they can focus on China and the State Department is, 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 is more kind of attuned to the threat coming from, from Russia uh, and Belarus for that matter. How do you see this playing out in the administration? So let me just first say, uh, Brian, following on what Kostya just said, I, I, I think what we're seeing here, not just with Ukraine, Kostya briefly mentioned the situation with Belarus and Lukashenko. That's being done, in my view, with, with Putin's support, or at least Putin is doing very little to rein that in. Um, the, a new threat now to cut off gas to Moldova. Uh, we see Russia taking advantage of the situation with Saakashvili's imprisonment in Georgia and, and having a field day with that. Uh, we see renewed tensions in the Caucasus. This underscores that the U.S. administration's phrase of seeking a predictable and stable relationship with Russia reflects a complete misunderstanding of Putin's approach. He thrives on unpredictability and instability. And the administration, I think, needs to uh, change its rhetoric, if not its overall approach. And here it comes to your question. Um, I do think that there are splits within the administration on how to deal with Putin. Um, again, parts of the administration just want to put Russia off to the side so that it can focus on China. But even parts of that point of view um, feel that we can't get too tough on Russia. If we do, then we run the risk of escalation where Putin will move into Ukraine, will produce the very result we're trying to avoid. Um, then there are other parts of the administration, I think more located in the State Department, the first point of view is mostly at the National Security Council. The second is more at the State Department, where I think there is a more hawkish view. 
Um, I put John Kerry in a separate category. He wants to do anything possible to uh, uh, warm up ties with with Lavrov, uh, his buddy, and and Putin. Um, but I think in the State Department, uh, there tends to be a more hawkish approach. There are questions about um, whether the U.S. is looking to get engaged in a Minsk process. Minsk, I think, is, as Kostya said, is dead. Uh, mm-hmm. Ukrainians don't want it forced on them. And and so uh, how is the administration going to engage on this? I do have one suggestion. Um, uh, there, there are going to be a, there are a lot of recommendations about what to do. I, let me just put one forward. If a summit with Biden is so important to Putin, I would suggest that President Biden make as a precondition the full and verifiable withdrawal of Russian forces along the border with Ukraine. I'm not talking about the forces inside Ukraine. Russia, of course, denies that there are any. Um, that, that's a bridge too far for the time being. But if, if Putin wants a summit with Biden, I would say that the U.S. president should say, you have to withdraw those forces. And if they return, just the return of those forces would prompt the imposition of sanctions. You don't have to cross the border again. Um, I, I think the president of the United States cannot simply agree to a summit with Putin, virtual or in person, without getting something in return for it. In advance, yeah. I mean, are you surprised, David, by the way this is going with this administration? I mean, let's. I mean, the president has no illusions about Russia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he famously looked into Putin's eyes and said, "You don't have a soul." Right. Um, and Putin responded, and we put a mind through, through, but we understand each other. Um, but so, I mean, Biden has no illusions about Russia. Is this surprising to you? And I, I expect Tony Blinken's voice, the Secretary of State, to carry more weight than Jake Sullivan's in this administration, but it doesn't appear to be the case at the moment. Yeah, there, there are, I think, quite a few surprises. If you look at the first three months or so of the administration, they were taking a pretty tough line. Biden's response to the question, do you think Putin is a killer? Uh, the imposition of two rounds of sanctions, although the second round was not as strong as it could have been, in my view. Um, and then I think things changed in April. Why? The buildup, as Kostya described, in April of Russian forces along the border. And I think just as important was Navalny uh, appeared to be on his deathbed. And the administration wanted to avoid both of those things coming to fruition. And so it extended its hand. And as a result of that, I would argue it's gone quite a bit softer than Perhaps it initially was heading in in a tougher direction. So yes, NSC seems to have more influence right now, Um, but the the cyber issue has been a huge one. I don't think there's been much progress there at all. And that is a case where Russia has attacked hospitals and and, uh, oil pipelines and other things. And those are not friendly acts. And, And I think we have to come to grips with the fact that Putin does not mean us well. Um, and unless and until we recognize that, we will just see repeats of this because Putin is going to view us as weak. Um, he's watching uh, what happened in Afghanistan and, and the Russian uh, media had a field day with that. Um, and so all, all the things that Biden does elsewhere around the world are being followed closely in Russia. And by the way, how we're handling the Russia-Ukraine situation is also being followed very closely in Beijing too. Yes. Yes, of course. So, Kostya, is Putin playing chess and we're playing checkers here? <laughs> well, uh, I don't think that, that the administration is playing anything at all, at least for now. I mean, the American administration. Uh, maybe they should start with tennis or something like that, but I think something more powerful. Uh, but, 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 but I think, uh, or baseball, uh, but I think that uh, the, uh, what David mentioned is very important. Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, 
the fact that that China is watching. And I think that uh, Putin, it's not only Ukraine, Putin feels that his potential, uh, his potential, uh, the potential list on the agenda, on, on, on a possible agenda with the United States has expanded, has lengthened, because it's now Afghanistan, the security of Central Asia. Um, it is definitely if uh, Biden wants to uh, make China the priority of his administration, rather, then the issue is, well, you leave Putin somewhere in the, uh, 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 behind the lines, probably have to talk to him so he won't be up to something bad. Right. Not necessarily be supportive or uh, uh, do some kind of wonderful things for Washington, but just he should not meddle in that, at least. So there's, and Putin understands it. I, I, I don't want to go into this, uh, uh, Biden will do another Kissinger-Nixon on Putin as they did uh, on China in 1973, 72. Uh, but what I mean is that it's clear that Putin is very tightly connected to China. And if uh, the administration is all out against uh, uh, CCP, then, I mean, they have to talk to Putin to ensure that he's not going to do something really nasty uh, while they're fighting this war. So I think that um, Putin feels that uh, he has uh, an expanding list, lengthening list uh, that he can discuss with Biden. And he thinks that he should, in a certain way, force Biden to, 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 to talk to the Kremlin. And that's, I think, what he's trying to achieve. He's showing that he can be unpredictable, as always. He's showing that the European allies of the United States are at least currently worth, they're not worth much, frankly speaking. And um, that is supposed to, I think, in his mind, corner Biden into talking to him uh, earnestly. And let's not forget, they still have new stock to discuss and that, that, that is there. And of course, the small things like uh, uh, kind of return of the diplomatic missions to, you know, full stuffing, reopening consulates, property, stuff like that. And it's very interesting to me that we haven't seen, uh, at least on the American side, any confirmation that these small step diplomatic uh, initiatives are uh, evolving in any way, because that to me would be a sign that that the decision was taken to kind of unfreeze with Putin. Probably, I'm not in Washington, there's still really a debate about how to approach Russia. That's good, because if the decision would be taken to basically forget about Ukraine, then you are, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but then it will mean that Washington's given up on Europe, it's given up on, for lack of a better term, on the post-Soviet space, and that means that chaos will return to Europe. And then eventually some other administration. This is going to be the Kamala Harris administration, the, the Pete Buttigieg administration, the Tom Cotton administration, I don't know which administration, will still come back and deal with it. Yeah. I, Putin said, and this, is, this kind of uh, caught my attention, Putin said Russia, he would use the summit, this purported summit that we don't even really know if it's going to happen or not, he would use it to, quote, push for serious long-term guarantees that ensure Russia's security in the region. Um, when, when Putin starts talking about security architecture, that, of course, we all know is a euphemism for things like Ukraine's sovereignty. 
Um, and and so, but on this summit, is this something? Do you think, David? What do you, I mean? Do you think this is something that's really in the works, or did 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 Putin just make this up out of whole cloth? I, I think he made it up out of whole cloth. I don't think there's any kind of summit in the works. Um, and because otherwise, I think we'd be hearing from countries like Ukraine expressing concern about what all this means. I don't think it's a, a serious overture on his part. Um, and I don't think the administration um, is, the, the Biden administration that is, is that ambitious in terms of looking into a whole new security architecture in Europe. I think its concern right now is reassuring NATO allies that the alliance actually matters. It still carries a lot of weight and that Article 5 still means something. I do think that is something Putin does respect. But he's testing it. He's testing it through Lukashenko in Belarus uh, to see what might happen there. And I, I think even there, there it, to the extent that Putin might rein in anything, it's possible he reined in Lukashenko where uh, Polish and Belarus uh, forces started firing blanks at each other because all you need is one real shot to go across the bow and then you have a big problem. Um, so I do think Putin still does respect NATO in Article 5. Um, but he doesn't want the countries that are not currently members to have the opportunity to join, obviously, in particular, Ukraine and Georgia. And, and so he's trying to uh, make these countries as unappealing and unattractive as possible so that NATO and the European Union, because the EU is now also a big problem for Putin, both NATO and the EU lose interest in bringing in these new states. And the Georgians, unfortunately, are doing a pretty good job themselves with some Russian help of making themselves uh, an unappealing candidate. Um, the Ukrainians are uh, struggling every day, but that's in part because there's a conflict uh, that still flares every single day in the Donbass region. That doesn't help. Right. I, I think if I may, if I may very briefly, I think that looking from kind of my European perch, uh, I think that Putin... Uh, will want, when he talks about security guarantees for a P5 state with arm to the teeth with nukes, that may sound a bit ridiculous, but in Putin's mind, that will mean that NATO will in some way uh, publicly reverse the 2008 Bucharest summit policy on, uh, of promising Georgia and Ukraine membership in NATO. And I think that Putin is now thinks it's probably a good time, because you're going to have Olaf Scholz, the Social Democrats, uh, in power in Berlin in a few months, or probably even in a few weeks. Uh, you're going to have a U.S., uh, sorry, a French president besieged by the nation, which wants less Atlanticism, more attention to immigration, uh, less military engagement, less Americans around. Uh, and uh, I think that... Uh, Bearing in mind the fact that these are two important allies right. uh, in NATO. Uh, Putin thinks, well, why not try? Why not try, especially bearing in mind the fact that this administration also seems to be playing with the idea of looking away from Europe. And uh, it will take form, in Putin's mind, of some kind of communique, probably in, uh, during the Madrid summit uh, next year, about the fact that, well, yes, we promised, but, you know, the countries themselves... Uh, have to work much longer, and then we'll see whether we can promise again. I mean, I'm I'm just you know, right. some, but some kind of uh, some kind of hint at the red line will be made by Putin and his propagandists 
into a full-blown red line, which the Putin's, uh, the, which Putin's uh, proxies uh, in the EU, uh, red, right, right, left, and center, will be using now. Say, well, you know, NATO said they're not going to join. Let's not discuss it. We don't care what Putin does to Ukraine. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Hanna Hopko, the former uh, Ukrainian MP's remarks uh, in Vilnius uh, at the Democracy Summit last week, or she, or the Democracy Conference last week, where she said, my, my grandchildren are going to be, you know, going to college and we'll still be wondering when <laughs> Ukraine's going to get mapped. But there, there is an optimistic way of looking at this, as I'm thinking this through, is that our policy in Ukraine's working. These things that David, that you spelled out and Costa, you spelled out about, about the increased integration of the Ukrainian military with the with with Western militaries, the the the, the defense assistance. This is working, and it's got Putin's attention. And the logical, from my perspective, the logical thing to do would be to stay the course, right, and and to intensify that cooperation, um, and to raise the costs of potential uh, Russian reinvasion. Um, before I move, we move into the second half to discuss the, the democracy conference in Vilnius, I did want to bring Belarus in because it's kind of been popping up in discussion here and there. I mean, it seems like Lukashenko sort of, quote unquote, eased the crisis by pulling the, you know, eased the crisis that he manufactured by, by pulling the migrants back. Um, this was after he got rewarded with a phone call, two phone calls with Angela Merkel. Um, he attempted to leverage those phone calls into uh, blackmailing Germany into taking 2,000 of these of these migrants that he brought to Minsk. Germany wisely rejected that. But it, it, this kind of I'm sensing a pattern here, right? Dictator provokes con, con, uh, crisis. Dictator, you know, after being an arsonist, plays the role of a firefighter and, and, and gets rewarded with a high level meeting or phone call. This is all happening though, uh, as Belarus is being militarized massively by Russia. Belarus is being turned into a de facto extension of Russia's Western military district, which again opens another front in Ukraine, not to mention the threat to Poland and to Lithuania and to Latvia. How do you both kind of see the Belarus peace in this? And how do you see the events in the last week where the crisis seemed to ease on the border? Well, I'll maybe kick it off and say, Look, I, I, I've reached a point where I think uh, the United States and our allies should designate Lukashenko as a terrorist. Um, and to be clear, not a state sponsor of terror, because if we suggest he's a state sponsor of terror, that connotes a recognition of him as being in charge of a state, and we don't recognize him. He's not a legitimate president, um, and we have said uh, so. Um, but given what he did last August, stealing the election, then launching the worst crackdown in Belarus's uh, history since independence, That's uh, a hijacking of the Ryanair flight. I mean, that that is a terrorist act. Um, and then what he has done with the weaponization of migrants and refugees, he's engaged in human trafficking on a massive scale. Um, and usually we go after people for doing that kind of thing. Um, and so I think we should designate him as a terrorist, which should mean there shouldn't be any more phone calls between any Western leaders and Lukashenko. That runs the risk of legitimizing him in the eyes of the people in Belarus who are still there, those who haven't been forced out. Um, and we need to get much tougher. Brian, you and I have talked about this a lot, um, not just with the other sectors in Belarus that matter to Lukashenko, but with his Russian supporters. His Russian uh, and going after the so-called money bags, as they're called, or the wallets of Lukashenko is critically important. Um, if we have to go after those in the UAE, who also facilitate Lukashenko's financial uh, situation. It, it's time to really get tougher on him because, as we often learn, 
the way a regime treats its own people is in, is indicative of how it will behave in foreign policy. And look at how Belarus is behaving now. Uh, with Lukashenko still there and the problems he's creating for Latvia, Lithuania, and, and, and Poland, um, this is a, a serious crisis. And we don't seem to be acting as if it is one. Um, but if this were happening in in, uh, in Germany or anywhere else, um, th- th- it would be endless news coverage. I'm not saying it's being ignored, but uh, this is this is a massive problem that is not being addressed. And the root of the problem is both in Lukashenko and it's in Putin who supports Lukashenko and without whom Lukashenko would be out of power. Yeah, David, I would wholeheartedly endorse that. And I've been arguing in my column in the Atlantic Council. We have to kind of treat the, the Putin-Lukashenko axis of autocrats, as I've come to call it, as a unit, as a unit. Um, Belarus, yeah, Belarus is still technically a sovereign state, but it's only technically a sovereign state at this, at this point. Costi, your thoughts before we move into the second half? Uh, well, I think that, uh, first of all, Putin has his own goals in Belarus. He's very close to achieving them. Uh, it will be still a notionally sovereign state that's much more convenient for Putin. Uh, but the thing that Putin wants to achieve two things there. One, you already mentioned, uh, an official agreement uh, with Lukashenko on, uh, on uh, deploying Russian military uh, in Belarus. Secondly, probably in the future, that will be much more difficult, Belarus adopting Russian ruble as national currency. Yep. That's it. The list of the wish list is very, very short. Yeah, because that will ensure full control without Putin having to meddle in uh, kind of uh, cumbersome uh, problems of uh, Vitya Pskovlev. Uh, what uh, uh, what I think is important here is that looking from Vilnius or from Warsaw, I've been last week. Um, this is an attempt to test NATO's eastern border. Forget the EU. The EU, we know. Uh, will do something that will be the result of a very long protracted compromise that will involve, uh, you know, Belgian meat industry and uh, Italian bag producers. But I think that looking from Warsaw, looking from Vilnius, this is an attempt to test the solidity of NATO's eastern border at its very vulnerable point, the Suwalki gap. And this is something that is taken here very seriously. And I think a measure of a significant, if symbolic, but symbolic, but significant, symbolic as a sign, but significant in size and scope, uh, action by the allies to show that they're taking it seriously uh, should follow. Whether this crisis is going to diffuse tomorrow, I don't know. But it, this crisis should be followed by actions by other allies showing us their practical solidarity. Because what I'm afraid of is that if Lukashenko uh, is, uh, well, getting scot-free, the next time we'll see not migrants. We'll see track-suited members of a sports club, quote-unquote, with weapons they found, as they did in Donbass, in Vojnton, moving somewhere near Kana or near Narva, or uh, near Augusto Vosuvok. Right. And I suppose that uh, they will be just lost during, during their sports exercises. So I think that this should be taken very seriously. And uh, I mean, with all due respect for humanitarian issues on which uh, David uh, worked uh, in uh, George W. Bush administration, 
this is a matter of national security, looking from uh, Lithuania, uh, looking from Poland, looking from Latvia. And less so, alas, when you look at it from Berlin and Paris, but I hope that um, this would change too. Yeah, no, this, as I've said before, it's, it's, the mo- it's the most serious qualitative change in the security equation of NATO's eastern flank since the annexation of Crimea, and it should be treated as such, but it unfortunately is not yet. Um, and again, as I said, the sad part of this is our policy in Ukraine is working, and we should really stay the course. Um, and it's a good, a good, good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and broaden the aperture a bit to look at the broader context uh, the geopolitical drama on the Ukrainian border is playing out in. That is the struggle between Western democracy and Russian autocracy. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the beautiful Lithuanian capital of Vilnius is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. And joining us from beautiful and sunny Miami, Florida, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at Florida International University, Stephen J. Green School of International Affairs. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So the tense situation on the Ukrainian border, as well as the migrant crisis on the Belarusian border with Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, are taking place in a broader normative context. The struggle between Western liberal democracy, which is in crisis, and Russian-style kleptocratic autocracy, which appears to be resurgent. Next month in December, U.S. President Joe Biden will host a summit of democracies in Washington to address the current challenge and come up with solutions. Kostya, last week you and I were both delegates at a conference in Vilnius on the future of democracy, which the Lithuanian Foreign Ministry organized to prepare for the Washington summit. And big kudos to our friends in the Lithuanian Foreign Ministry for, for, for doing this, for taking taking this this, this uh, important uh, summit of democracies coming up next month so, serious, uh, so seriously. Present at that conference um, were members of both the Belarusian and the Russian opposition, some of whom will be present here in Washington for President Biden's summit on democracies. First of all, Kostya, what were your takeaways from the Vilnius conference? Well, I think that such conferences are, to a large extent, um, they, 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 they are launched, they're prepared, uh, they happen uh, for people to be able to exchange views, to exchange experiences, uh, and to probably learn from each other, because definitely some Venezuelan opposition leaders that were with us too can learn something from 
from the Russians yeah. uh, about the way the Russian regime operates, and it's very important for 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 the Venezuelans. Um, I also think, and I do hope, that um, Russian opposition figures will talk more to the Belarusians, and will talk to Ukrainians that were also present there to talk about the state of Ukrainian democracy, which is, uh, on the one hand, uh, assaulted, well, not assaulted, but frequently attacked by forces of oligarchy and corruption, and on the other hand, is attacked by Putin externally. So I do uh, think that my, my takeaway was that uh, the Ukrainians, for example, talk a lot to Belarusians. Mm -hmm. I do not see, at least those Russians that I saw there, talking that much to the Ukrainians and Belarusians. That actually makes me sad. Yeah, I'd like to see more of that too. I am afraid that there is a very, uh, not very far-sighted, to use a typical English understatement, policy uh, among some Russian opposition figures to kind of conveniently forget about Ukraine and Belarus because it will allegedly not work well with the Russian public, mm -hmm. which sees both issues as issues of kind of imperial grandeur. Uh, maybe in the short term, term, that's true, but Russia doesn't have normal politics. It's not parliamentary democracy or even semi-democracy in which you discuss, well, you know, we'll tone down this a little bit and then eventually we'll do something, but for now we have to do this. We have to talk more about taxes than about you know the environment or military budget. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Right. Uh, Putin makes his uh, biggest strides, usually domestically, when he uh, does something on the external front, when he attacks Ukraine, when he uh, switches off gas to Europe. We don't know, actually, also. And, and, and I think that one should confront it because Politics is not only about managing political campaigns. It's about big ideas and big ideological confrontations. And I'm afraid that just talking about corruption, just talking about uh, uh, things that are dangerous and bad, but which are only part of Putin's portfolio of evil, um, it kind of, in the long term, undermines the struggle because it has to be comprehensive. Like the otherwise, it, it's going to be as comprehensive as the Middle East peace settlement, which is always a loser. And I think that I that this is an important thing. And to put it to look at it from a different perspective, I also think Ukrainians, a lot of Ukrainian people, should. Uh, not subscribe to this idea that, oh, you know, all Russians are the same. They're all Putinites. Mm -hmm. Of course not. Uh, even from a practical point of view, you have to work with people who oppose your main enemy. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an elementary politics. So I'm not blaming only one side here. No, I'm not blaming, but I'm not trying to push one side. I'm trying to push other sides too. And I'm afraid some Belarusians are also saying, well, you know, Russians are, we, we know who they are. Uh, at the same time, I have to say, when you speak to uh, people in Russian opposition, they are very surprised that most public figures opposing Lukashenko among Belarusians do not mention the name Putin. Or even if they mention it, they say, well, you know, probably Putin will eventually see that Lukashenko is bad. Well, 
my colleagues uh, who work in uh, Russian NGOs, Russian opposition journalists, politicians, they are surprised. It's very clear that this is a kind of access that you have now between uh, Moscow and Minsk. Why avoid it? Why pin false hopes? So I think that all these wonderful people have to uh, have to learn the new realities and have to start seeing things as strategic perspective. Because Putin, and to some extent Lukashenko, as small as he is, have acquired um, certain significant experience, which makes them not merely political. They are statesmen, bad people, of course, but they know how to play their game. They are playing it long term. You have to learn to do the same. And I hope that this interaction, the summit of democracies at other forums will actually be, first and foremost of all, an educational experience for all those people, because I understand why. In Russia, many people thought, oh, you know, we're never going to be like Belarus. And Russia is very close now domestically to, well, yeah. with all due respect, given to the size and scope and stuff like that and complexity to what happens in Belarus. It approached it. Uh, Ukrainians, yes, you, you are the most free. Yes, Ukrainians. Ukrainians the most free of the three countries. But, well, let's face it, there are lots of issues there. Yeah, I saw, I saw a lot less. So that is, if you wish, my take. There should be more honest conversations, even if initially they may be not very pleasant. But, well, it's not a cocktail party. It's political struggle. Right, right. No, there was less synergy than I would have liked to have seen, among, as you said, among the former Soviet opposition delegations and the Ukrainian official delegations, um, because they, they but but they, in, in this realization that this is, at the end of the day, a normative struggle, and that the, you know, all of these opposition movements in Belarus and in uh, in Russia, as well as the official delegations in Ukraine, are on the same side of this, this normative struggle. I, I had an interesting conversation with a, with a Venezuelan opposition figure there who was talking about the Russian disinformation that's that's in Venezuela and that we don't know how to deal with this because we've never dealt with it before, right? We're on the other side of the world. And I said, talk to the Ukrainians. Talk to the Ukrainians because they know all about it. They can give you a chapter and verse on how you deal with this. Uh, talk to the Lithuanians. Talk to the Latvians because they know how to deal with this. David, uh, hey, just before David chimes in, just one phrase. And I think that coming back to uh, what, to the organized, to the Lithuanians, the Lithuanians Keep reminding uh, yes. the Russians, the other Russians, you know, in 1991, not so long ago, 30 years ago, nearly half a million, about 400,000 Russians went to the, hit the streets in the center of Moscow for freedom of Lithuania. Yep. So there can be solidarity. It's yes. not impossible to imagine. And I think that this, but one needs to work on it. One want, first of all, one needs to want it and then one needs to work on it. And then remember the human chain, which was mostly Baltic citizens, but I know a lot of Russians were part of that Baltic yep. chain yep. Um, yep. In, sure. in, in 89. David, I want to get your thoughts on this, because in, in government, democracy was your was your brief, basically, at, at, the, at the State Department when you were your assistant secretary of state. And you weren't, you unfortunately were not in Vilnius. I would have loved to have seen you there, because I thought you would have been able to add a lot. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm sorry I wasn't in Vilnius either, but it, the summit that they hosted, I think, is a reminder 
of what a powerful role Lithuania has played in this struggle. Um, they both talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, they, they are providing uh, valuable political and diplomatic support to activists in the region. Um, they are taking in people from Russia and Belarus and elsewhere who have to flee. Um, they're dealing with this border crisis with, with Lukashenko. Um, Lithuania has really stepped up to the plate, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge the role that they have played. And I think it's why uh, I think uh, Foreign Minister Landsbergis has had his meeting with Secretary Blinken. I think another visit is, is scheduled as well. Um, and that's a reflection of how, how valuable a role uh, Lithuania has played. The, the Summit for Democracy that President Biden is going to host uh, December 9th and 10th will be virtual, so there won't be anyone actually coming to Washington for it. Um, I, I wrote a piece today in the Washington Post with Mike Abramowitz, who's the president of Freedom House, in which we express concern about the way the summit is being prepared because it looks like civil society will be marginalized, which we think is a, is a major mistake, that there will be a, an endless series of, of uh, speeches made. So a lot of uh, hot air and empty rhetoric with leaders making commitments that they can't uphold. Um, and so what we have argued is that civil society should play a much more prominent role in this summit than, than is apparently going to be the case, that leaders should uh, pledge their support, financial as well as political, to human rights defenders, democracy activists, uh, journalists and others who are coming under relentless attack in Russia and Belarus, uh, you name it. Uh, it's around, this, is, this is a global phenomenon, unfortunately. It requires a global response. And then lastly, that um, we, they should make a commitment to uphold democratic standards in our own countries and to reaffirm that we are, as Kostya said, in a battle against authoritarianism and that we have to show that we are prepared not just to be on defense all the time, but be prepared to go on offense, to put the authoritarians on their heels so that they are not the ones calling the shots and we're simply responding to it. So uh, the summit is, what, um, about a little over two weeks away, um, concerned about where, how it's shaping up, um, and it's an important opportunity that I hope the administration uh, takes full advantage of. And there was there was an interesting along the lines of kind of like punching back David. There was an interesting comment made on the panel that I was moderating, where it was suggested that the democracies kind of create a, a um, an economic Article Five. Um, for example, when Lithuania basically uh, opened up or allowed to be, uh, a representative office of Taiwan to be opened up in Vilnius, China sanctioning them now, and that the rest of the world's democracies should kind of unite and basically have counter sanctions against anybody that attacks one of the democracies. I thought it was a very intriguing, interesting and outside the box proposal. Uh, do you do you think things like that could work? I mean, it's it's getting Article 5 invoked at NATO is, is hard, hard enough if we're talking about, about dozens of democracies. But do you think that we should be thinking in those terms? I do, and I think it's long overdue. I mean, I could, I remember when Lu Xiaobao was chosen by the Nobel Peace Prize Committee for that prize, and the Chinese went after Norway, and very few countries came to Norway's defense. Um, so this kind of behavior is something that, sh when we say it's unacceptable, we should do something about it, because otherwise we're accepting it. And, and so I do think it's important that 
the democracies unite and push back on this kind of behavior, the bullying that occurs, uh, particularly a country the size of China bullying Lithuanians. Lithuanians are standing right up against them, yeah. and good for them. Um, in defense, by the way, of a democracy, Taiwan. Taiwan yeah. is a democracy, and that's whom we should be aligning ourselves with, not with the Communist Party of China. And, and so, yes, I agree. And, and the other part i just say very quickly is, um, pushing back on corruption. This this is for our own good, and it also is a way to uh, possibly uh, cripple the authoritarian regimes that depend so much on corruption. I've argued for many years, Putin's greatest export is corruption. But in order to export it, we import it. And so yeah. shame on us, we need to do a much better job of uh, cleaning up our own house and it, it stop enabling this corrupt behavior that not only perpetuates these regimes where they are in Moscow, Beijing, and elsewhere, but it corrupts our own system as well. Yeah, we're we're Putin's enablers there. And I was to say I was so happy to see so many representatives from Taiwan, um, as well as exiled uh, democracy activists from uh, from from Hong Kong. Uh, there, because I was I was I was glad to see that that that, that, that component was there. It's because you wanted to jump in. Yes, I wanted to say that uh, not only Russians and Belarusians get shelter, but also uh, Hong Kongers. There was, yeah. as you rightly said, several, and they live in the Baltic states. There was one from, I think, um, in, uh, Tallinn, uh, another one was, I think, from Riga that I saw. Uh, I wanted to add something. I think that uh, the kind of the, the prequel to uh, Lithuania's decision to uh, quit uh, the 16 plus one format and open Taiwan's representation, which is called Taiwan's representative office, yes. not the Taipei Commission, right. how the basically the quasi-embassies are usually called in all other countries, including by the, the United States. Uh, the the uh, story that predates that was that there was a demonstration in support of Hong Kong uh, in the central villages, and the Chinese embassy organized local Chinese, there is a small community, to come with a counter-demonstration. And uh, it, well, it didn't become very violent, but there was a very tense situation mm -hmm. and the police had to kind of defuse it very, very elegantly, I have to say. And I think this was seen, and rightly so, by the Lithuanian leadership as an act of, still mild, but interference mm -hmm. in domestic affairs in the functioning of Lithuanian democracy. And that was the response. And now with the new government in the Czech Republic yes. being very, very uh, strong on supporting Taiwan, we can hope that, speaking about first steps, that there's going to be solidarity and more Central European countries will quit the 16 plus one because when a few others do, it will collapse. And it's easy. I mean, there is not a huge dependence on, uh, on China and Central Europe, at least in quite a few countries. Uh, and what's even more important, the authoritarians only the authoritarians only respect those who are prepared not only to impose sanctions or fight, but to do things that will harm. And it's important to I think this will be, this will be important because authoritarians like Putin or Xi only respect people and countries that are prepared prepared to. To, to fight in such a way that losses are inevitable and they take on board the necessity of losses. If you lose something, then you're really serious about fighting. This is the logic 
And I think that this is something that uh, the Lithuanians and as we see now with, with, with uh, Lukashenko, migration war, the Poles understand very well. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the Lithuanians get it. They've always gotten it. They've always reminded us that that our, that our policy needs to be principled, as if we should have to be reminded of that. But I'm grateful for them to continuously remind us of this. Uh, we're bumping up against the end, David. Last word to you, if anything you want to add before we wrap it up for the week. Well, look, it, th this is this is a global struggle. Um, and these regimes, these authoritarian regimes, engage in transnational repression, which is to say they crack down not only within their borders, they're doing it beyond their borders. Um, these regimes are threats not only to their own people, they're a threat to their neighbors, they're a threat to uh, democracies. Um, the, the Russians are a little cruder in their efforts, the Russian government, that is, to be clear. Uh, are, is cruder in its efforts than the Chinese are, but the Chinese are, are also engaged in this. And so I, I, I think the democracies in the world need to get a little more confidence, recognize that as long as countries still want to join NATO and the EU, those entities must be doing something right. Is, uh, and when refugees flee, they don't flee to China, they don't flee to Russia, they flee to countries where they actually could enjoy rights we often take for granted in our own countries. So it's time for us to get back our confidence um, and get a little more on offense rather than constant, constantly playing defense, which we seem to be stuck in these days. Very well said. That is a perfect note to, to, to wrap it up on. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the ETA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the beautiful Lithuanian capital of Vilnius has been Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle, and joining us from sunny Miami he is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. Uh, gentlemen, thanks as always for an enlightening and lively conversation. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Have a nice Thanksgiving everybody. Join us again next week and until then I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.